If you've been around for the last couple of months, then you likely will have heard. But one of our uh, emphasis, we, we turned 10 as a church. Uh, we celebrated that in September. And one of uh, the things we felt like God led us to as a part of uh, our vision for how we continue to move forward and mature as uh, a community in this next decade was the integration of some shared spiritual practices uh, that we would focus on as a church each season. And so uh, in the fall, we read through the book of Colossians and we had some shared practices that we were walking through uh, during that series and now during Advent. Again, we have um, an inhale practice and an exhale practice. The inhale practice is silence and solitude. And so um, our exhale practice is generosity. And uh, we've been having members of the community share stories about their experiences practicing uh, their faith in these ways. And these stories can help us pull these things out of the sort of theoretical realm and into the practical. And so uh, today we have uh, the privilege of Tori Langford is coming to share uh, a story about silence and solitude. So would you welcome her? Good morning, everybody. So we're all going to Inhale, uh, I, like many of us, have been a person of activity and action. While this led to some good things, it also led me down a very destructive path. I became so accustomed to heavy amounts of anxiety, stress, and really pushing to make things happen that I did not understand and could not identify God's love, grace, and will. 2016, there was a hard stop to this way of life. I got into a situation that I could not fix or persevere my way through. In 2017 and 2018, a sequence of heavy personal events for me and my family ground my life to a halt. Well, a halt for my life as I knew it. I entered a season where I had no choice but to rest in order to recover. I was not able to work. I was not able to be in New York. And I moved in with my dad in Florida at age 31, like all cool and successful New Yorkers. <laughs> for a period of time, I slept for about 14 hours a day. Uh, working out became taking a light walk through the neighborhood. There are many times that the silence of the thoughts in my own mind were unbearable, um, yet somehow I survived. I learned what daily bread meant. It meant breath by breath and step by step. This felt like a great reset or losing your life so that you may find it. The winter of 2018-2019, I returned to New York and I entered a real time of silence and solitude. I spent a remarkable amount of time thinking on my couch. I live alone, and often on Saturdays, I didn't have plans. Um, during this time, the Holy Spirit washed into my apartment. Um, I just went with it, and morning prayers led to scripture, led to worship, led to epic journaling, uh, led to text message prayer requests, and possibly a nap. Um, <laughs> you got to sleep after all that work. Uh, God, worked th uh, God worked through things with me as I sat in one place for extended periods of time. Great healing occurred. It is through silence and solitude that God has done some deep healing in me. It has taken down my whole nervous system to now be much more aware of anxiety, the feeling of being drained or getting sick. It has been a place where I began to know grace and began a real relationship with Jesus. It's been like a large, deep lake from which new ideas have sprung forth, ideas that come from God, not what I think the world wants in order to be approved by it. 
It has been where I learned that while silence can be uncomfortable and life is hard and we have pain, God is loving and gentle and his will is not one of striving to do impossible things at tremendous personal cost. Only through silence and solitude was I able to sense God's will before beginning to pray myself. God became more like a friend instead of a Santa Claus figure whom you give your daily Christmas list. I still continually fight against the feeling that quiet time is laziness, being surrounded by the world's most productive people. This period has helped me recognize how poignant the present moment can really be. Silence and solitude can be a scary thing for the questions it presents. It can be confrontational, and it can also be boring. Throughout the year, I've received prophetic words of rest, silence, and solitude, and I confessed, I have asked, God, really? More rest? I thought I was resting enough. <laughs> Yet, I can stand here and testify to you that I was healed by God beyond my expectations. I had expected to go through life as damaged goods, but that is no longer the case. I am more at peace than I have ever been with the course of my life and myself in general. I'm not saying that I've accomplished everything I long for. I haven't. But my day-to-day -day is significantly more pleasant and significantly less anxious when God's rest is built into my routine. So I just want to encourage everybody during this winter season that through the walls of discomfort, God is there and he will be there with you because he has gone before you. Um, and there is such a sweetness and increased intimacy with God on the other side that the pain is redeemed. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's my hope and my prayer for everybody through, through these dark and just you know, can be scary times. Um, yeah, so that's, that's what I have to say about my experience with silence and solitude. And now we're going to have Katie light the Advent candle. Thank you, Tori. Today, as we continue on our journey to Christmas, we light the fourth candle of Advent, the candle of love. In lighting it, we remember our loving Savior and how he came once as a baby, an offering, a gift from a loving father, for the salvation of the world. We begin this morning with Eugene Peterson's rendering of the famous passage in John's Gospel, describing the extent of God's love for us. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son. And this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, Anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. Now hear the words of the poet Malcolm Gweet in meditation on this same passage. The whole round world, in Greek, the total cosmos, is all encompassed in this loving word. Not just the righteous, right on, and religious, but everyone of whom you've ever heard. For everyone is precious in his sight, chosen and cherished, loved, redeemed, before the circling cosmos ever saw the light. He set us in this world that we might flourish, that his beloved world might live through us. We chose instead that all of this should perish and turned his every blessing to a curse. And now he gives himself as life and light that we might choose in him to set things right. 
This is what we celebrate today. The all-encompassing love of a God who came to people he knew would reject the offering of his very own life. The one whose love is the light shining in the darkness for all the world to see. Church, let's pray to the one whose love has made us family. Say these words with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are love itself. Teach us in this season to abide and remain in you. Make us your image bearers, that as we have been loved, we would love those around us. Amen. Peter's going to come now and read our teaching text from the Gospel of Luke. The passage for this morning is from the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke, the first 20 verses. It's a familiar passage, but just try to picture it in your mind and listen for what God may be bringing it to you for this morning, okay? In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be, uh, pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news uh, that will bring great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the, the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. Just in line with what Peter challenged us to, I just want to say a quick prayer along those lines. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would help us to hear this story uh, with fresh ears if we have heard it uh, many times, God, but it might sink past our ears and into our minds and hearts, God. And if this story is new to us, I pray that, uh, that you would come through it uh, to embrace each of us. I ask for your help. 
Holy Spirit, we are here for you. I pray that you would just arrest our attention for a few moments, give us a sanctuary in time, that we have nothing uh, that we have to do in these next moments except commune with you, except experience you, except uh, speak and listen honestly with you. And I pray that that would uh, wash over us like a relief that we could drop any burden that we've carried in with us, any distraction that's repeating in our minds, and that you would help us just to hear uh, what you have to say. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, I took my boys, my older boys, into Manhattan yesterday. Uh, we uh, saw, saw the very large tree that they have at Rockefeller Center. You may have heard of this. Uh, we, we bought a few gifts. Uh, we, we saw a movie, Jumanji 2, got to recommend it. Um, uh, we, uh, we, got, we, we stumbled into this uh, huge Nike store in Midtown, and they were doing a thing where you could try on new Kyrie 6s, which uh, blew my boys' minds, and they would videotape you uh, shoot, like shooting or doing layups, and they had like 400 cameras, and so it would show you in slow motion, just like and uh, I have those videos if you want to see them. They're really great. Um, on the way home on the train, uh, we witnessed something that happens on the train from time to time. Uh, a misunderstanding that escalated. Uh, a young man uh, moved near the door and the train was very, very crowded. Uh, I don't know if you've been into Manhattan on the Saturday before Christmas, but lots of folks. Um, and uh, the, uh, so the train was crowded. The, this young man moved north, near the door. And as the car jolted, as the cars are, are like to do, uh, he would have fallen into the man sitting on the seat by the door. But the man held out his hand and attempted to steady uh, this young man. Uh, the young man immediately objected to the older man putting his hand on him. And the older man explained he wasn't trying to push him, but to help him. They argued, and the young man began shouting. Uh, the older man said he should lower his voice. The younger man did not agree. Uh, he went the other direction entirely. He began shouting profanity and screaming for the man to stand and fight. Uh, the seated man did not rise to fight. He said it was not worth it. Um, the younger man made a show of adjusting his clothing, uh, basically to seemingly communicate that he had made his point and he should not be messed with. Um, my boys were sitting right behind me, and so I was sort of on very high alert. Not that I wouldn't have been high alert if they weren't there. It was like high alert situation. So, um, And there was a moment uh, before the train pulled into the station where all of us who were immediately around were like, what is going to happen uh, next? Uh, I happened to look down, and I saw the older man pull a large blade out of his gym bag and slip it into the coat uh, that he had. We made eye contact right at that moment, and um, I tried to communicate with a look, uh, some level of compassion, uh, and that this whole situation was quite unfortunate. I don't know exactly how my compassionate, this is unfortunate look goes, but it was something like, <laughs> it was also a hint of, please do not take that knife out. Um, the young man got off at the next stop, and I think the train breathed a sigh of relief, but it was our stop, so we got off as well. We had to transfer to the F. We had, of course, been to Paragon Sports. It was a day of many sporting goods. Um, 
And I walk with the boys. We're 20 yards or so behind this, this young man. And he continued to adjust his clothing in a very vigorous manner. Um, and I wondered, as we followed him, how he thought about the situation. Uh, his adrenaline would have surely been going down by that point. Ours was. Did he see himself as the winner? Would he retell this moment with pride or with embarrassment or not at all? I spoke with the boys as we walked about strength and weakness. We were all very relieved that nothing had happened. Uh, In the recap, I had almost forgotten that Elijah tugged on my jacket and caught me by the eye and whispered, please don't say anything. (laughs) Which I think says something about uh, us and me and, um, and him, and I'm not going to get into all of it, but he did not want me to get involved. Um, the young man had appeared or wanted to appear strong. He had shouted, he had sworn, he had threatened, he had challenged. The old man uh, said he had tried to help. Um, he had declined to fight. Uh, but he also had a very large blade. And I told the boys as we walked that you never know what's going to happen. You never know what a person is capable of. You never know who you're dealing with exactly. And they should always, if they can, take the path of de-escalation. But later on my own, as I was reflecting on it, I was, I was thinking it's very difficult, actually, to determine strength and weakness uh, based on just what we saw. Or even really to determine clear lines of right and wrong just based on what we saw or our angle of it. There were endless aspects of the men involved who we don't know, you know, like aspects of their lives that we can't see, that we don't know about. There were parts of their interaction that we couldn't hear clearly uh, before their voices were raised. Their motives are, are hidden from us. They're impossible to know. But I was left with a memory of one person who seemed to think that their anger and their willingness to fight made them strong. And one person who seemed to demonstrate that restraint and self-control was more of a display of strength. But also that the shouting man who was asking for violence had no idea what the other guy had up his sleeve. And since everything that happens to me in December becomes a sermon illustration... It got me thinking that we can misread this story. We can misread the Christmas story. If we read it merely for another quaint pass, once again past some old nativity scene in our memory, with the serene hands of the parents opened up, gazing into the manger with love, and the cows are there who are not mentioned, and the chickens are there who are not mentioned, and the animated talking mice are not mentioned at all, but they're there as well. And I'm not critiquing our nativity scenes. They're fantastic. Uh, Even though, of course, they get some serious aspects of the story wrong and they're guessing at details and they're putting things in that are not necessarily there. But I mean, the gospel writers, Luke the physician in particular, is trying to help us see that the birth of this baby is the beginning of a showdown between rival kingdoms in the world, rival ways of doing things in the world, rival ways of living, rival worlds, basically. One, one is a world of power and dominance, of loud shows of strength, of, of controlling the other through superior might, that you're in charge as long as you can take it and as long as you can keep it. And the other is a world of apparent weakness, of obvious poverty, 
of no-name shepherds and no room in the inn. One is a kingdom of self, of greed, of instant gratification. The other is a kingdom, it says, of love, of self-giving, of this long bend in the story towards grace and justice. But to be clear, I think one kingdom has no idea what the other has up its sleeve. You see, in the beginning of the first century, uh, the world already had a son of God. There was already a son of God, and he was very well established. Uh, He's mentioned in the first uh, few sentences of this passage, but Augustus had finally defeated all of his rivals. He had killed Mark Antony in a famous battle. He had turned the great Republic of Rome into an empire. Augustus was Caesar now. Once he got in power, he sort of, as people who are wildly successful sometimes do, he reimagined the early narrative of his life and proclaimed his his adoptive father, Julius, to be God. Uh, He had a comet sighting to go along with this, and he said, this proves it, that you saw the star, I'm a son of God. So I got that going for me. Um, He had the poet Virgil on retainer, court poet, um, who pushed this myth out into the far reaches of the empire Uh, Augustus demanded that it be told far and wide that he had brought Pax Romana. He had brought peace and justice to the whole world. He had at least, you have to give him credit, brought an end to the wars for a time because they had beaten everyone so soundly that there wasn't anyone to fight for a while. Though, of course, there always will be someone to fight. Augustus, people said, was the savior of the world. He was the king. He was its lord. Increasingly in the eastern part of his empire, people worshiped him as a god. If you said savior of the world, if you said son of God, at the time of the nativity, everyone would have imagined you meant Augustus. Nobody would have thought you meant little baby Jesus from the cartoon movie. Augustus' locally-backed ruler was in charge in the, in the area where Jesus was born, Herod the Great. Uh, Herod used the myth that Augustus had, had perpetrated uh, across the world, uh, that uh, Augustus' grip on the world allowed him to secure his own power and to brutally dominate. So just to be clear, into this scene that's so familiar to us, Rome was the kingdom. Augustus was the proclaimed savior and son of God. And his church, his outpost, if you will, uh, in Herod the Great, it might have been slightly less impressive, but it could not be reasonably contested. They had a secure grip on the power. This is the world of the Christmas story. And it's a little bit easy to forget because like, I want to just light a candle and you know, sing Silent Night and think about what, what, what have we gotten for you know, each of the family members. But the characters we know from the nativity, they're only even going to Bethlehem because Augustus needs to know the financial scope of the world he is ruling. He needs to know just what kind of empire he has on his hands. Now that the dust of the battles have settled, how much tax base are we talking about here? That is why the census is taking place. There's a fascinating detail about the translation of the part in the NIV that is in the, in the parentheses there about Quirinius being governor of Syria. I would love to cover it with you, but I refuse, okay? I'm not going to do it. If you want to get a coffee, it's very fascinating, okay? They're going to Bethlehem because Caesar Augustus, the son of God, the savior of the world, 
the one who's brought Pax Romana to the empire, has said, I need to know how many people are here so I know how many people to tax. That's why they're going to Bethlehem, okay? But of course, we know, we know, we've read some of the other parts of the story, there's another reason. There was this old promise that was uh, woven through Israel's prophets that Israel's Messiah was going to be born in the town of David. He was going to be born in Bethlehem. He was going to represent the line of David. He was also going to be a king. So, two kingdoms in the story operating very differently. One appears absolutely in control. The other appears altogether weak, insignificant, vulnerable. We know that Herod's violent outrage is going to turn these parents from the nativity into refugees. There's an angelic show of power and a demonstration of joy, but the first people to celebrate this baby are despised shepherds. Right, and I'm sorry if your kid played the, you know, the shepherd in, in a pageant at some point. Like they, they, they were the, the spies, smelly, third shift workers, probably not caring for their own sheep, but someone else's. They're not the people that you would entrust to begin your movement with a declaration of victory or that something new is, is, is on the horizon. Uh, you may have seen this being passed around the internet, but a church in California's nativity this year depicted Mary and Joseph and Jesus' refugees. Not exactly the nativity we're familiar with. No matter what your politics, this might rile you up for different reasons. But I put it on the screen for just a moment so that we cannot forget the reality of the world that Jesus was born into. He was in desperate straits. He was poor. His parents would have to flee to another country to save his life. This doesn't seem like the beginning of the overthrow of the dominance of Rome for one generation. It doesn't seem like the beginning of, of a worldwide movement that is going to change lives physically, emotionally, and spiritually uh, going forward you know, for the rest of history. It doesn't seem like this is eternal life breaking into the world, whatever that means. But the gospels seem determined to not let us miss this reality. There's so much more happening here than would just be visible to an observer from any angle, really, right? Of course, that's true of so much of our life. We can't see all that's going on under the surface. I love how N.T. Wright reminds us of this. He says, Augustus never heard of Jesus of Nazareth, but within a century or so, his successors in Rome had not only heard of him, they were taking steps to obliterate his followers. Within just three centuries, the empire the emperor himself had become a Christian. Some problems with that. But when you see the manger on a card or in church, don't stop at the crib. See what it's pointing to. It is pointing to the explosive truth that the baby lying there is already being spoken of as the true king of the world. Augustus never heard of Jesus of Nazareth, but in 300 years, without a printed Bible, with no Christian conferences, with no downloadable worship music, no Christian podcast, not a single one. The entire world had been turned upside down by this obscure peasant family that had to run for their life from, from the empire because this upside down way of love was changing everything. This way of power and dominance and violence for one generation, for how long we can take it and how long we can keep it, was being exposed again for its lack, 
for its inability to really change uh, society or human beings or hearts. And this little seed that fell into the ground was growing up into a tree that was providing shade and life and nourishment and something new in the world for all who came to it. The details of this story have been examined for centuries. <laughs> You've heard a Christmas message before. The historical and spiritual impact of, what, of those few 20, 20 verses that we just read are nearly impossible to grasp at any one look or, or certainly at first, at first glance. So I want us just to see a few of the details again this morning. I know you've heard them before. But just as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, as, as you're invited to welcome this upside-down kingdom into your own heart, you're invited to meet this Jesus for the first time or for the millionth time this morning to say in the prayer of Advent, come Lord Jesus, and know that Jesus would love to do just that. First and very simply, this story demonstrates that a promise has been fulfilled. The promise has been fulfilled. Luke has been deliberately building towards this moment of the four gospel writers. He spends the most time on the narratives leading up to the birth of Jesus. And, and we're seeing the news of this Messiah, the news of this child coming, intersecting life after life in the story. And the details are piling up now and the intersections are, are, are getting a little bit clustered. And uh, we have heard that God is weaving together centuries of promise into this moment. God is getting involved in the world in a way that the world has never seen. And the, and the way that the world, even the most faithful before, might not have dared to even think was possible. We have heard that a baby is going to be savior and king. We've already heard that in Luke's gospel. And then this happens, right? We pick up, right, in the Charlie Brown part of the story, but like so much has happened, all the weeks of Advent leading up have already happened. The promise has been spoken, it's been reverberating, it's been echoing, it's been coming down through the centuries, it's been pressing in on us, and then while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Simple. We've heard it before. It's not comfortable or easy or maybe the way we might expect, but the baby arrives. God says in the most astonishing way, whatever else God is saying in this story, God is saying what is needed most to heal the world, to heal an individual, to heal a community, to heal a family, to heal a life, to heal a city, is a person. What's needed most is a relationship. Not instructions, not commandments, not five easy steps, not do these things, and if you do them well enough, when you get to the end, we'll weigh it all and we'll see if you're in or out. That what the world needs most is a person, is love. That over and over this character of Yahweh is being demonstrated as not like ours in some significant way, or another way to say not like ours in some significant way is to say holy. The word literally means other, set apart. Something about God's nature is different than us and that God is a relationship within God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and that is moving out in this Christmas story into redemption. We don't just need five easy steps to a better life. We need a friend, a parent, a brother, a teacher, a redeemer, a king. So God comes as a baby, and I say that every year, 
And so I say with you, we cannot let ourselves stop being astonished by that. God Almighty comes as a baby. The promise is fulfilled. The second thing I want us to notice for just a moment is the promise is for shepherds and for angels and for everyone in between. Whatever it is, the promise has been fulfilled, and the promise is for angels and for shepherds, for shepherds and angels and everyone in between. So first, the shepherds. I just want to say a couple things about them. What can you say about the shepherds, these guys? I mean, we've said so much. Um, but the first is really obvious. We've already mentioned they were poor and obscure. They were not the people that you would choose to herald such a message. They were not like uh, an entirely new epoch is breaking into the world. It, 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 they had a terrible reputation. They weren't allowed to give testimony in, in, in court. They would not be the ones who, who you would choose to give word of this miraculous birth. So that's the first thing, very simple. The second is the lambs that they guarded, the flocks that they guarded outside of Bethlehem would have been of economic and spiritual value, right? They were not only commodities in a largely agrarian society. These lambs, these very ones, were often sold to be sacrifices in the temple. God had been working with, with, with Israel for centuries. In some ways, it may seem primitive and barbaric to us. To, it's like hard to get your mind around why the sacrificial system is even there in the first place. But God had been working with Israel for centuries to show the impact of sin is never just what you can see. Right? You lie to someone, and maybe you get away with it. But there's an impact in the relationship and there's an impact in the emotional and spiritual field that you might not see, but it's there and it's present and it has to be dealt with. Basically, God had been dealing with Israel over and over again to show them that, that just the, the, the obvious, like sin has its own consequences. And when I'm talking about sin, if you're unfamiliar with that, what we mean by it is that if you break with God's word and character... And go your own way. Try to be your own God. Try to meet the deep needs of your life and soul out of just your own resources, taking, not taking God into account, right? You separate from God, and what comes into the vacuum there is a significant loss. Actually, what comes into the vacuum if you separate from God, the source of life, is death. So we have summary statements in the New Testament like the wages of sin is death. What on earth is that talking about? To break with God brings death in a relational sense into the world. You're disconnected from God and you're significantly disconnected from others and you're trying to have the world revolve around you. And so God works with Israel over and over again to say this lamb is representing the death that's taken place because you lied, because you cheated on your spouse, because you cheated the poor, because you ignored my commandments, because you've refused to rest, because you've been workaholics, because like, you don't see the death that is, is coming into the world because of these things, but I'm showing you in this visual demonstration of atonement. So we have the sacrificial system, and these shepherds, these third shift smelly guys, are, 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 are taking care of these flocks that were used in the temple as a sacrificial system. And it's very significant that in the Christmas story, God says, you're off work. Almost like this way of doing things is ending. This sacrificial system has been a pointer to something else. That sin brings death, that death always ripples out, that for death, for, for, for sin to be dealt with, death has to also be dealt with. For healing and forgiveness to flood into the world, this death has to be addressed. And these shepherds are let off work. 
In fact, these shepherds go to tend the Lamb of God. Like they leave the sacrificial system of the temple and they go to the final lamb, the one who John the Baptist, just a little while later in the story, will say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the final one to deal with death so forgiveness and healing can flood into the world. It's a big deal that these shepherds are let off work. I had all this loosely in my mind. I was thinking about saying just that part about the shepherds. And then yesterday in the lectionary, the lectionary, this selection of readings, it gives you a psalm. It gives you something from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, from the Gospels. The psalm yesterday, Saturday morning before Christmas, was one of the most famous psalms in all the psalms. Psalm 23, which begins, this is a test. It begins, the Lord is my shepherd. So God is a shepherd. God is a shepherd and God is letting these shepherds off duty and sending them from tending the flocks outside of Bethlehem for the temple to tending to the Lamb of God and announcing that something new is breaking into the world. And if you want to go back and read Psalm 23, you'll get a pretty good example of what kind of shepherd God is. God is, is so identifying with, with, with the world and with these shepherds in particular that God is willing to say, I'm a shepherd as well. You want to know what kind of shepherd I am? I'm one who comforts in exhaustion and longing. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What? He makes me lie down. He makes me lie down in green pastures. It's like, you will lie down. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul Whatever kind of shepherd God is, he is a soul-restoring shepherd, an every level of life healed and restored kind of shepherd, a knowing who you really are, who you've always been meant to be, the deepest level of how you're loved at the very innermost part of your being type of soul-restoring shepherd. He's also present in darkness and confusion and loneliness. Lo, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are somewhere far away and I'm having to scream out, I have no idea where, no, you're with me. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It says he, he makes a table in the presence of our enemies. So he, he comforts us in our exhaustion and longing. He's present in, our, in the darkness of confusion and loneliness. But he's also the one who can steady us and nourish us in places of tension when we feel attacked. The most absurd place in the world to throw a picnic is in the middle of a siege when you're surrounded by your enemies. When they're pressing in on all sides to set up a table Like if you just go into the F train with me for a second, right? This man is screaming, get up and fight me. I just imagine the Lord being like, let's both have a sandwich here. I have a sandwich, let's have a sandwich. Don't listen to this guy, let's eat. He makes a table for me in the presence of my enemies. The end of the psalm, if you don't remember, says, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. God is a shepherd, I think that's part of the reason why he, he goes to these guys, third shift guys, in the middle of the night. He's like, you're, let me blow your mind just really quickly. Like, all right, guys, come on in with the angels. Get them. 
God is not just sending shepherds, God is a shepherd. And so we have what looks like this very ordinary rabble of people disturbed in the middle of the night, hearing astonishing things, wondering did, has, how much wine was in this, this wineskin before we started the evening. Did you see what I saw? And them saying, no, I saw it too. And they all uh, say our vision was real and they run to the town of Bethlehem to see if it's true what they've just heard. So God sends shepherds, but also God does send the angels, right? Like, I, I, I find myself, depending on when you read it, right, you can identify with different parts of the story. Like, okay, the mundane, ordinary parts are, are comforting to me. There's real life, there's political drama, that all makes sense. There's traveling hassles, amen. There's disheveled shepherds. But God wants us to know that what is happening in this story has the full backing of the resources of heaven. In a sense, all of heaven's attention is turned towards what's going on in this, in this story. Whatever is going on, it is impacting all of earth, and, and history, I think, has borne that out. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, the historical impact of this story has changed everything, how we measure time, how we see our history, how, how many people across the world that are not like you, that are not as sophisticated and educated and as intelligent and, and accomplished, cling to this message as if it is their very life. But it also doesn't just involve earth, it involves all of heaven. This baby eventually would teach his followers to pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And we're getting a glimpse of that here. On earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. Just read it one more time with me. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appear with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. This is a collision in a very intentional, powerful way of heaven and earth. So just for a second, like if you have unbelief, that's fine. You're so welcome here. You're so welcome here. If you're like swimming in belief, it's all you can think about, you're so welcome here as well. Uh, but I just want you to think for just a second. It, it, in the midst of these outrageous events, listen to what the angels say. Right? You might struggle to believe that God exists or has anything to communicate to you, but if you set that aside just for a moment, just listen to what these angels say. This is the message of heaven as it comes crashing into earth, that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Here's the first thing. Do not be afraid. God is aware of what life is like. He knows how it can be on the F train sometimes. And he keeps assuring us not to be afraid. He even speaks of a peace. And, and later we come to know that that peace is beyond human understanding. Like it doesn't always go A plus B equals C. It doesn't always add up exactly how we, how, how, how we, how we imagine. But this peace is breaking into the world. And when God shows up in the Christmas story over and over, the repeated refrain is, do not be afraid. It is the accuser, it is the enemy of our souls who will constantly repeat to us that we need to be afraid. 
who will ramp up our anxieties, who will, who will ramp up the accusation and the ticker tape of our own minds and say that we're never going to be enough, that we never could be enough, that this is always for someone else, that we're somehow always excluded, somehow always other. Do not be afraid. I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on each of these. I just want you to hear them again for the fr- for, in a fresh way. Do not be afraid. Next they say that whatever's going on here is good news for all people. What qualifies you to be a recipient of this good news? And, and it's, it's news, right? It's news like, like the war is over, right? The, 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 in the Alpha videos, they're, they're talking about this breaking in. They're saying like there's, there's, there's victory in Europe day where, where it's declared that the war is over. But then there's a long mop-up operation that takes place before all the fighting is over. And so the news breaking in, the good news actually changes things. It actually says a new reality is broken in and we're waiting for that new reality to become fully realized. And that's what we're in the middle of now. This is good news. Something has substantially happened in the life of Jesus that changes things. And we're waiting for that full realization of that victory to be demonstrated. And it is good news for all people. Not just a special group or elites, or people of a certain race, or people from a certain era of history, or a certain region of the world. Good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And the reason is this child that is being born is Savior, Messiah, and Lord. And we've spoken about this all through Advent. The one who deals with sin is the Lamb of God is also the culmination of all the promises that God has made to Israel that are now spilling the banks of Israel and flowing to you and I. And also, Lord, eventually Augustus is not gonna be there anymore and Jesus still is. His first followers didn't go around saying, God loves you and has a plan for your life and here's how you cross the Jesus bridge onto the other side. They said, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. That was the first gospel message. What seems to be an authority and power actually has a limited time here. And God's kingdom is breaking in. This child is Savior, Messiah, and Lord, the true king of a different kind of kingdom that the world has ever known. And that's why in this very story, even in the annunciation from the angels, you see the weakness of God. Right, so it's the kind of weakness you see like standing in front of a tank, like no chance. And Jesus lets the thing roll over him and then gets back up. And then what do you do if you're the tank? You crush this person and they came back. Like the power of God is breaking into the world, but in the most absurd way, this baby cannot hold its head up. And it's the head of the church. This baby cannot wipe its own bum and it's gonna cleanse me of my sin? The weakness of God in the proclamation of the angels and then on its heels also the power of God. For what? What would God use God's power for? Glory to God in the highest, of, in the highest heaven on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. Glory to God is something we sing about a lot the, wor- the word literally means like, uh, the, the New Testament word doxa is like a revelation of God's character. So basically like when God's character is fully revealed 
It's not like you're at, when we glorify God, we're not adding something to God God didn't have. Something that is true about God is being seen and shown and, and, and revealed and celebrated. And when God is glorified, when God is really seen for who God really is, what breaks into our world and our life is peace, reconciliation, love, embrace, adoption, family, newness, forgiveness, mercy, justice, kindness, generosity, the fruit of the Spirit. Do not be afraid. This is good news for all people. The child being born is Savior, Messiah, and Lord. You will see it in the weakest possible expression, but it is the power of God. And all of this adds up to to a message that you are loved. The final thing I want to leave you with in this Christmas message is the promise assures us of God's love. God wants to be with you, wants to be involved, has moved on to the block is ready to look you in the eyes and say, I love you, I always have. Please, no matter what you've heard, make no mistake this Christmas that you are staggeringly loved by God. He has come for you. There are no lengths God would not go to in order to communicate his love. And I know some of you have known the real pain and agony and disappointment of wondering, is the promise coming You're not alone. The people in this story, that's what Advent is about. It's how long, oh Lord, until we really see it. Until we see the end of fear, right? We've heard the news. When will it be fully realized? This good news is for all. That means you. This good news is a person. Which means this morning, again, you can come and meet this Jesus for the first or millionth time can welcome again this Jesus into the center of your life. This is extraordinary love. And it is ordinary appearances. It is showing up on your commute, before breakfast, when you've burned dinner, when you're just so fed up with online dating that you can't believe it's come to this. When your family members you said, please come the week before Christmas, and they're like, I just bought my ticket. I'll be there the 26th to the 30th. Praise God. Can't wait to see you. Why don't you stay till March? In the real details of life, God is communicating his love. It is extraordinary love and ordinary appearances. This is the message of Advent. And let me pray wherever you are that you could encounter this Jesus that can't hold up its head, his head in this story, but is the head of a new kind of kingdom breaking into the world. It's available to you right now of all places in this middle school. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we celebrate you, God. We, we put our poetry and our songs and, our, and our, uh, our, our rituals and our meals and all of it, and we say, this is about you. The whole thing is about you. you you've come breaking into the world in a new way. And and your kingdom doesn't work like the other kingdoms. It doesn't work uh, as an army coming marching down the the, the road to dominate for one one generation. It is a seed sown in the world that is is counterintuitive, is upside down, is backwards, and yet it changes everything. It is a new way. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord, 
who hangs on the cross and rises in victory. Who is the baby in the manger and the king on the throne. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would translate for us. That you would communicate the love of God to us this morning in a way that each of us can understand. I pray, God, that you would help us to welcome Christ into the center of our lives, in the center of our motivations, in the center of our plans for next year, in the center of this celebration, in the center of our pain, in the center of our disappointment, in the center of what seems like delay. Would you help us to invite Christ in the middle of all of it? Because you are showing up in this unexpected way, God. Communicate to each person by your spirit how we can respond, how we're invited to know today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, what a year. It's been a great year. I love you guys so much. Thank you for letting me be a pastor in this community. It is, it is a true joy. Sometimes it drives me crazy, but I love you guys, and I, I, lo I love this family that we're in together. Um, will you stand with me now? We're going we're gonna to respond as we always do. We're going to sing out praise to God. We're going to come to this meal of communion. Some of you will have things that God has laid on your heart to pray for. You can come and pray at these rugs. They're here not for super spiritual people, but just so you can change your posture. Sometimes that's important to get out of the wooden seat and kneel or sit or, or, or whatever. Just have some space to commune with God. There will be people up here that if God has put anything on your heart, good or bad, a question, a thought, a praise, Coming forward doesn't mean you're particularly messed up. It just means that you're trying to respond to what the Spirit has said to you. So we're going to respond in three ways. We're going to sing in worship. We're going to come to the table of communion, and we're going to pray either in your seats or up at the front or with someone. We would love that. Extraordinary love, ordinary appearances. The sacraments of Jesus' kingdom are this very ordinary meal. Piece of bread and a sip from the cup. The symbol of our transformation is, is, is a bath going under the water, coming up. Our old life is gone. Extraordinary love and ordinary appearances. Let's prepare our hearts to come to the table. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What a privilege and a joy, church. What an expression of love to share this meal one last time together in this space this year. Let it be a culmination of every time you've taken this meal in this space this year. Let it be a culmination of the love of God poured into our hearts in the person of Jesus. He has come for us. Let us be embraced. Let us be nourished. If you want to know what kind of shepherd he is, read Psalm 23 this week. Read it today. Heavenly Father, bless your church. Fill us with your spirit as we come to the table. We come to the communion of Christmas. Speak to us. Draw us in. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.
Church, as you're ready, come and receive the meal. Let's sing out in worship and come and pray.